You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. That's our goal this fall. We want to go deeper into the gospel together and help each other figure out how this applies to everything in our life. And today we're starting with what is really the foundation of the gospel. In, in biblical language, it's called justification by faith. Now we're gonna be in Romans 5. Uh, I would love for you to open up to Romans 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black Bibles in front of you. It's on page 886 in those Bibles. And when you turn to Romans 5, you'll see that phrase in the very first sentence. Romans 5 verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And you can see that that's a transition verse. Like the therefore means that he's already explained what justification by faith is. That's the main subject of Romans one through four. And so we'll look back at that briefly today. But then the next phrase, since we have been, means what has happened in the past has implications now and in the future. Up until this point, Paul's been using a very sort of argumentative uh, style of writing. Uh, here, he switches for the first time to this more personal we. There are personal implications for whatever justification by faith means. So we wanna look at that today as well. There's something to understand and there's something to take hold of personally. Both are important. And Romans 5 brings them together for us. This passage that we're going to look at is about the joy of justification. I don't know if you've ever heard those two words put together, but I just did it because that's what this is about. When we understand the gospel and we experience it personally, it produces in us so much joy. And I don't know who wouldn't want that. And so let's dive into it. What is justification by faith and what does it mean for us now? Those are two questions. First, what is it? Well, let's look at verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it's pointing us back to the previous four chapters, which I'm gonna run through pretty quick. Um, in chapter one, Paul begins with this verse. I think I have it up on a slide for you. Chapter one, Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, the righteousness of God is a term that has a range of meaning. It can mean God's righteous character. It can also mean God's righteous activity. And in Romans, it, it's speaking about his justifying activity, his ability to bestow upon us a new status. And you see both of these aspects of God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. Uh, the gospel reveals the righteous character of God and the message of that is that, that nobody can stand before him. Uh, in chapter one, the rest of chapter one, Paul goes on to describe the sort of pattern, the spiral of human sin and rebellion. Uh, we suppress the truth about God, we pursue our own desires, and we end up worshiping created things rather than the creator. And if you were with us uh, this summer and when we were in Genesis, that should sound very familiar. 
Because from the beginning going forward, that's the story. And all of humanity stands guilty as charged before God. And in chapter two of Romans, Paul wants to clarify something, and that is that religious people don't get off the hook. In fact, religious people are even more guilty because they have God's word. Like they know what is right and they don't do it. And then in chapter three, he gives us a nice little summary. Romans 3, 23, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's righteous character, his holiness, is a standard that we cannot meet. No one here can justify themselves before God. But God can justify us. God has the ability in his righteousness to bestow upon us a new status. He can declare us righteous. That's the good news. So Romans 3.23 is the bad news, and I've heard that verse quoted a lot, which is fine. Unfortunately, I haven't heard the very next verse quoted that much, and, and that's the good news. So it's all one sentence. Let's look at it. Romans 3.23, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same sentence, and are justified. Those people who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are the same people who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, so everyone, everywhere stands guilty as charged before God. We deserve to be condemned. But instead of condemning us, instead of giving us what we deserve, God gives us something we don't deserve. He declares us righteous in Christ. He gives us a new status. Uh, it's, a, it's a legal term that means we are acquitted of all charges that could be brought against us because of our sin. It's unbelievable. In Christ, we stand before God, no longer enemies, but friends. No longer under wrath, but under grace. We stand before God in Christ and God sees us and accepts us in the same way that he sees and accepts his own son, Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. This doctrine, justification by faith, this is at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, in part because of people like Martin Luther who found new life in these verses. Uh, Luther was a pretty troubled dude, and the thing that he was most troubled about was, was this thing. He, he looked at the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, he looked at his own life, and he knew what that meant. Like, he knew he fell short. And because he was a religious person, he tried his very best to make up the gap. He, he fasted, he prayed, he took on all the dirty work at the monastery, just trying to make himself better so that God would not despise him, but like him more. But the more that Luther tried, the more he realized that the problem in him was deeper than something he could fix. For Luther, when he read the righteousness of God is revealed, it felt to him like a crushing weight because who could stand before that? Ray Ortland tells a story that in 1510, Luther made a pilgrimage to Rome. There was a stone stairway there that supposedly had been brought from Jerusalem that supposedly Jesus had once walked on. That's all immaterial, but 
people would make their way to Rome to, to climb up these stairs. The devout would get down on their hands and knees and they would go up each stair one at a time. And every time they came to a step, they would kiss the step and they would pray and they would do it again and go all the way up that way, trying to change God's mind about them in some way. And Luther did it. Uh, Luther says that when he went up this stairway, he had two minds. He had a mind of faith and a mind of fear. He knew the words by faith from Romans 1. Uh, But he was also stuck in fear. Fear of all kinds of things, that God would reject him mainly. And so he went up the stairs of two minds. By faith, said Paul. By fear, said Luther. And each step he went up, by faith, by fear, by faith, by fear, he made his way up. Some of you are on that staircase today. Like you want to believe so badly that the gospel really is for you. And yet you are also half the time stuck in fear. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not being good enough. Because that's how our world works. Our world is a place where you have to prove yourself. It's based on your own merit, but the gospel opens up a whole new world. A world in which everything is based on what Christ has done. His merit is accounted to us. When that sank in for Luther, when that truth sank in, this is what he wrote. He said, I felt myself to have gone through open doors into paradise. All those doors which had been shut by his good works, by grace, had been opened up. And it's a great image because it alerts us to the fact that the gospel is not a one-time thing. It, it brings us through the doors, but it brings us into a paradise, a reality, an experience of God's presence and power for real. That's where Paul is taking us in Romans 5. He wants us to feel the joy of justification. So he says several things here. Uh, We're asking the question now, what does justification by faith mean for us today? And Paul has lots of answers here. First, verse one, he says, well, the first thing it means is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't talking about um, sort of an inner feeling at peace that may occur. This word here means an objective reality about our relationship with God. Uh, Romans 2 tells us we were storing up wrath for ourselves. But now, now that God's wrath against sin has been poured out on Christ, we no longer have anything to fear. There's, There's no dread of God in us because now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we're no longer estranged. We're not at odds with God. The war's over. We've been reconciled to God. We've all, I think, experienced this on a smaller scale. Like you've, you've had some relationship with a family or friend or boss or kid or somebody, and that relationship was going fine, but then something happened, something was said, and you didn't deal with it, and it just kinda, it kinda grew this little wedge in the relationship. And over time, there's just this weirdness, and things just kinda drift apart. You ever had a relationship like that? Probably right now, you have a relationship like that, 
Most people, when that happens, they just try to move on. It's like, well, I guess I lost that. But sometimes people move toward each other. Sometimes you go to the person and you, tr- you clear the air. You talk about the issues. You get to a place where there's real forgiveness and reconciliation. If you've ever experienced that, then you know the immense relief that comes with that and joy. Like you have your friend back. There's nothing between you anymore. That's what Paul's saying on a much bigger scale. Whatever you've done or not done, whatever has been done to you, none of that stands between you and God anymore. We have peace with God. You don't have to wonder what God thinks. You don't have to try to make up for lost time. You can just relax and start enjoying God now. So we have peace with God. The second thing he says is we stand in grace. Look at verse two. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so the way that he talks about grace here is a realm or a sphere that we've been transferred into. Uh, He uses that language in Colossians. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the realm of grace. It's so different than the world. The world is a very unforgiving place. Uh, The world is business as usual, it's performance-based, it's consumer rights, it's cancel culture. The world is unforgiving. It's, It's chaotic because everyone's just trying to justify themselves and they'll do it at your expense if they have to. We're still in that world, we're still here, but but because we've been justified by grace, we no longer play by the rules of the world. We live and move and breathe in the realm of grace now. The realm of grace is like, so if you've ever worked in a very toxic work culture and then finally realized that's not good and you went and worked somewhere where it was like really, really healthy, then you know the difference. Still work. But over here in this healthy place, uh, work is enjoyable now. Authority is even like a good thing. People are more productive, but less tired. They stay longer with the company. There's all kinds of benefits. Just a healthy culture changes your work experience entirely. The culture of the realm of grace is the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we're still in this world, but Paradise has been open to us. The reality of God's presence and power, we have access to it. We stand in it and it changes our entire experience in this world. If you stand in grace, even in the midst of a chaotic world, you have a different perspective. You no longer are trying to extract life out of everything. You can just enjoy good things as gifts from God. You're no longer trying to hoard everything. You can be generous because you know God's gonna provide for you. Like you can serve people because you're no longer trying to gain power over them. You can actually just listen and not turn the conversation to your strengths and interests because you're not trying to impress anybody anymore. In the realm of grace, you can be honest about your sin and your weakness because you have been justified 
by faith. You don't have to go chasing a better life somewhere else because you stand in grace right where you are. The realm of grace is a whole new world and it's awesome. The effect of this, the effect of peace with God and just grace upon grace in our lives brings people to places of incredible joy. Look what Paul says, the next phrase in verse two. So we, we have peace with God, we stand in grace, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident anticipation. One person said it's savoring the truth ahead of time. Uh, Ray Ortland uses this story or illustration. He says, biblical hope is what a kid feels when he's being tucked into bed on Christmas Eve. He's giddy. He's so happy. Not because he has anything, but because of what he knows he's about to have. Since we have been justified by faith, we are so happy. Not only because of the present benefits, but because of what the future holds for us, what God has promised and guaranteed by his spirit, what he has attested to in our spirit. It makes us so happy. Uh, We sang about it just a minute ago. He said this lyric, when with ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it'll be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. That's where our future is headed in Christ. Unending joy and delight in the presence of God. And when that sinks in, you get excited about it right now, even though you don't have it yet. If you're still trying to justify yourself, you're not gonna feel that. Instead, you're always gonna feel just a low-level anxiety and restlessness and discontentment because you're not there yet. But if you will look to Jesus, if you'll be justified by faith, you'll have a whole new outlook on life. You have a whole new future opened up to you that brings you real joy right now. Even when life isn't going your way. Because some of you are sitting there going, yeah, sure, when times are good, that's easy to say. But what about when times are bad? And Paul anticipates this question. Look at verse three. Not only that, like not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only do we have joy in the good times, but we rejoice in our sufferings. If you've ever read church history, this is one of the marks of Christians throughout history is that they have deep joy, not only in good times, but in bad times. In fact, the, the growth of the church, the time when the Christians have the most joy and the most life and the most love for others is when they're being persecuted and when they're suffering. Why is that? It's either because they're just delusional or because they know something. Paul says it's because they know something. Look at the phrase. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing. Knowing what? This is what we know. We know 
that God will use our suffering to deepen our relationship with him. Like our suffering will make us even more certain that he's real, even more in tune with his grace and his love and his mercy. And that will not only strengthen our hope for the future, it will increase our joy right now. Uh, Look how this works. Uh, This is what we know. Suffering produces endurance. No one wants suffering, but when it comes, many people figure out a way through it. Uh, This is true for all people. When we suffer, people find new limits of themselves. They discover new reservoirs of strength and resolve. It's It's pretty profound. It's even more profound of an experience for the Christian because we are not just learning new things about ourselves, we're learning new things about God. New depths of divine comfort and wisdom and power. Verse four, and endurance produces character. That word, is it, it means tested character, proven character. It means things have moved from theory to experience for you. When you suffer, things that you hear at church, things like trusting God and waiting on God and wanting God more than what God can give, that kind of stuff moves from things you hear at church to things you cling to in real life. When you suffer, you find out that your faith in God is real. There's no joke. And that's a tested kind of character. That kind of character, Paul says in verse four, produces hope. This is what we know. Suffering gives endurance and endurance produces character and character just makes us hope more than we did before. Now, I want you to notice something. None of this is tied to outcomes. None of this is about relief from the suffering. It's about finding such joy in God in the midst of your suffering that you wouldn't trade it for any outcome. That sounds crazy, but if you've gone through it, then you know that reality. I was meeting with a family in our church recently. She has chronic illness, much suffering. She wants it to end. But she did say, we have met God in ways during this time. We've experienced his provision and his power in ways that are just miraculous. I don't think I would trade any of that. She knows. She has that joy that only suffering can bring. I came across a writer named Vanitha Reisner and she has quite a story. Uh, she was, she contracted polio as an infant. She was misdiagnosed, which meant she lived with widespread paralysis for a while, in and out of the hospital for 10 years. As you can imagine, she just had a really, a really rough childhood. She thought that when she became a Christian, things would get easier and then they did actually. She went to college Uh, She got a dream job. She got an MBA from Stanford. She met a guy there that she married. Things were going really good. And then they went really bad. Uh, She had four miscarriages. Her son died because of a doctor's mistake. She was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, meaning that she would likely become a quadriplegic. And then... On top of all that, her husband left her 
leaving her alone to raise two adolescent daughters. That was not the life that she thought God had promised her. Vanitha writes about her suffering in a very real, honest way, but she also writes about an intimacy with God that she discovered that only suffering can bring. And this is her perspective. This is her insight. She says, if I, if I do not trust God and believe that he loves me, I won't see how my suffering could be good. I'll start judging God's faithfulness and love based on what I can see and whether God has answered my prayers in the way that I desire. And she says this, to find hope in suffering, to experience what Paul just described, I can't be tied to specific outcomes. My hope is not that my situation will turn out a certain way or that God will give me exactly what I want, but rather that God will always do what's best for me. It's a living hope and a savior who loves me, not an outcome that I feel entitled to. And don't you want that? Don't you want a faith and a joy that's not tied to outcomes? Let's do a little exercise together. Now, this is real, this is live. I, I want you to think of something that you're, that you're going through. And, and you may be the kind of person that compares yourself to others who are suffering. It's like, it's not that bad. Just think of something that's difficult, a challenge, a hardship in your life. Get it in your mind. And then just to yourself, I want you to be honest about what is it you want God to do in that? Get those two things in your mind. Okay. You've got your situation and you've got the thing that you want God to do and you're holding on to that pretty tightly because you really want it. Close fist. But let's try this. You don't have to let go of that desire because you can ask God for anything and he can do it. So you don't have to let go of the desire, but what if you just held it in open hands? You didn't hold it tightly, you held it loosely. What if in that posture you considered that what God might be giving you in your suffering is the gift of himself instead of a solution? See, open hands is a posture that says, I'm ready to receive whatever God gives. In fact, I want it. I want the joy and the hope that only God can give more than anything else. That's a scary thing to do, to hold your life open-handedly. But Paul gives us this assurance in verse five. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame, it, meaning it won't come up empty. On judgment day, we will not be embarrassed that we put our hope in God. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Proverbs is in Proverbs 31, the, the wise woman, it says about her that she laughs at the day to come. Why? Because she's prepared. She's not anxious about the future. She's ready for it. We are ready. We are prepared because we have been justified by faith. It's a past action which is guaranteed for us a future glory. And the way that we know that both of those things are true 
is our present experience of God. He has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does, by the way. He makes real to our senses the person and the work of Jesus. He helps us understand what is true and then he gives us real experiences of those truths. He floods our everyday awareness with the comforting love of God, the encouraging and empowering, the soul satisfying, the future promising love of God. And because we've tasted that now, we know we're gonna feast with him then. When that all sinks in, when that connection is made in your heart and it's made real to you, you have such incredible joy. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want to stand in grace and laugh at the time to come? You can. It's free for the taking because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.